Well, I'm not going to continue in Hebrews today. Uh, um, I thought the final warning of Hebrews wouldn't be maybe the, the most appropriate message on Mother's Day. Um, I do want to encourage our women um, today, uh, to be honest. Um, you are so valuable to, to me, to your church, and you are so loved. But I also want to do that in a way which is applicable to, to everyone. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, God has designed men and women differently. And in that design, di- designing us differently, he designed us each with basic needs. And when you um, kind of compare the needs, they're not always the same in terms of priority. I don't know if you discovered that or not. But when you look at um, the, the basic needs for a woman, and this is just in a general sense, um, one of the women's basic needs is a need for open and honest communication. Women have the gift of communication. We men sometimes say it's the gift of gab, but it's the gift of communication. Um, women in general, again, I'm generalizing here, can, can talk for months on end and keep going. And when a woman comes into a marriage, that need is intensified and they want that from husbands. And if you know anything, again, generally about men, we're men of few words. When we come home from a hard day's work, the women want to know, how was your day? A one-syllable word answer is fine. And that's the word, fine. But women want more, don't they? Well, fine. Give me the details. Give me the specifics. And give me the feelings behind those things. But that's just one of the needs of a woman. We find that, and you work that through in relationship. Another need of a, a woman is, is leadership. And you might look at the world today and say, what are you talking about that? That's not the case. Um, and, and what we see at the, in the world today is, is really the, the curse upon women that we find in Genesis 3. The curse was that a woman would desire to usurp her husband's authority. Um, and that is certainly there. But a godly woman understands that we have different roles. And a godly woman wants her husband to be the, the loving initiator in the home the one who initiates the discipline of kids. And I use discipline in the biblical word, the teaching and education and training and cultivation of their kids. Women want their husbands to take the leadership in that. Women want their husbands to be relational in, the, in all the relationships in, in there. And they want to be the ones that are the spiritual guides. But what usually is the very top, if not the top or one of the top needs of a woman, woman is a need for security. And with marriage, that always comes into the, 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 the scene even more, and it's intensified even more when, when children are expected. That's the whole nesting thing. When, men, when, when women start to go and nest and prepare the home for a child, that demonstrates that instinct, that innate desire uh, for security. Women want a pretty home. They want a protected home, and they want a, a provisioned home. And husbands that uh, communicate uh, desire to sacrifice in order to provide those things for their wives are, in essence, providing security. But what happens when that security can no longer be provided? What if there is not a marriage relationship? So so what about an unmarried woman? What about widows? Where are they to find security? And I know I'm speaking about women here, but it's actually a need for all of us, even men, We desire security. That's why work is so important to us because we want to provide and that is secure for us. So it's a desire that we all have. And God has something to say on the subject of security because it's such an important 
uh, topic. You might think, well, where would we find this in the Bible? Would it be in an epistle? No, it's not in in an epistle. Um, In fact, you might find some principles there, but one of the places that we find it so beautifully illustrated in terms of how do we seek security is in a wonderful love story in the Old Testament. It's in the book of Ruth. So I have you turn to the book of Ruth. If you don't know exactly where that is, it's the eighth book of the Bible. So you've got to go back closer to the beginning. It's right after the book of, of Judges. In here, there are biblical principles for seeking security. And you might ask, well, why, why, why Ruth? You know, Ruth, is, it, it speaks so perfectly into today. And so I want to take you through Ruth, and that means I've got a lot to do in about 50 minutes, um, because Ruth is four long chapters. Now, we're probably not going to get through all of that, but I am going to be going through most of it, and I'm going to have to do it pretty speedily. So fasten your seatbelts and uh, get into your Bibles to the book of Ruth. If you look at Ruth verse 1, this sets the scene. It tells us that it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled. Now, what kind of days were those? What were, what were the days of the judges? Well, the book of Judges is right before this. So all you have to do is to kind of find out, yeah, what were those days like is to take a peek at the last verse of the book of Judges. It's probably on the same page of your Bible. It's verse 25. And it says, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Judges is the story of one of the lowest points in Israel's history. It's a record of division, of apostasy, of cruelty, of civil war. There's no king in Israel. There are few genuine spiritual leaders. God's clear, revealed will for his people is being disregarded. And so everyone is doing what's right in their own eyes. Does that sound vaguely familiar? It is today. We live in a similar time, spiritually speaking, for God's people. There's no king, and there won't be until Jesus returns. In his absence, many of God's people are living in unbelief and disobedience. Rejecting God's clear, revealed will for their lives, Christians are floundering. Many are like the man who doubts God in James 1. We're told that he's driven and he's tossed by the wind. They're thrown about from one circumstance to another. They, they lack wisdom from God that's going to pull them through those difficult times to become perfected and complete. God's neglected will then leaves decision-making at the mercy of circumstances, individual pressures, and strains from living in a fallen world. So consequently, they're not enjoying the blessings of God. Job 9.4 says, God is wise in heart and mighty in strength. Who has hardened himself against him and prospered? You can't harden yourself against God and then hope to prosper. We've got to be open to God's plan for prospering. If we obey God's will, even in the midst of difficulty, everything in life will hold together. If we disobey, that's when it starts to fall apart and we lose the security we so desire. Life is always better when we're walking obediently and trusting faithfully. And Ruth gives us an illustration of this truth. In the opening verses, we're introduced to two things. We're introduced to a family and we're introduced to a famine. And how the family reacts to the famine famine is what sets up the story. So look at verse 1. It says, It came to pass in the days when it judges ruled that there was a famine in the land, and a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to dwell in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. Now, this is strange that a famine would visit uh, Bethlehem because Bethlehem means house of bread. 
So the house of bread has no bread. Why do you suppose Bethlehem, the house of bread, is experiencing a famine during the days when the judges ruled? Everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes. They're neglected God. Why would God bless them? And that's part of what God promised them he would do. Way back in Leviticus 26, 18 to 20, he said, After all this, if you do not obey me, then I will punish you seven times more for your sins. I will break the pride of your power. It's a pride thing. I will make your heavens like iron and your earth like bronze, and your strength shall be spent in vain. For your land shall not yield its produce, nor shall the trees of the land yield their fruit. So when God judged Israel in this way for its apostasy, guess what? Both the ungodly and the godly suffered. They both suffered in the famine, much like Daniel and his three friends when they were dragged off into captivity. But listen, trials, which are sovereignly orchestrated by God, we've got to meet those things with the proper attitude. We must respond biblically. And seen from a biblical and spiritual perspective, they achieve what in our lives? Good right? They achieve good, Romans 8, 28. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. All things, good and bad, all things work together for the good. So here we have a famine. How can this be for the good? Well, there's a family in the midst of this. They were introduced in verse one generically. But if you look at verse two, we get the names. Look at verse two. The names of the man was Elimelech, the name of his wife was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Maclown and Kilion. That's how you pronounce those guys. Ephrathites of Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to the country of Moab and remained there. <laughs> so we're introduced to this Elimelech and Naomi and Maclown and Kilion. Funny enough, Maclown means sick and Kilion means wasting away. That'll give you a picture, maybe an idea of where these guys are going to go. Interesting names. But here's their decision. They decide to leave their country in Judah, where Bethlehem is, in order to avoid the consequences of a famine. And this is how you seek security sinfully, by reacting to problems sinfully. And this is the first, really, point. It's reacting to these problems um, in a sinful way. We do that by running, running from the problems. And this was the bad decision number one for this family. How so? Well, it was outside of God's will that they would leave. How would you know that? How do you find that from this? Because don't they have good intentions? Is Elimelech trying to provide the security for his family? He wants to save them. Isn't that a good thing? Won't they starve? Shouldn't we do this? Yes, we should provide for families. Yes, we should seek security. Yes, we should do that, but never at the expense of disobeying God. And this is what they did. How do we know they disobeyed God from this verse two? Where'd they go? Moab. Now, what's wrong with Moab? Well, Moab, if you remember, they were descendants of Lot. Lot had an incestuous relationship with his, with his daughters, and um, his firstborn daughter, from her came the Moabites. From the other daughter came the Ammonites, both uh, enemies of the Israelites. They were enemies of the Jews when they came up out of uh, Egypt. Do you remember, remember they hired Balaam to curse the Israelites as they traveled? And during the time of the judges, which is when this is taking place, all right, Moab had invaded and ruled over Israel for 18 years. This is the enemy of Israel. In fact, in Judges chapter 3, verses 12 to 14, we hear about them, and the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord strengthened Eglon, king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done evil in the sight of the Lord. And then he gathered to himself the people of Ammon and Amalek, went and defeated Israel and took possession of the city of Palms. So the children of Israel served Eglon, king of Moab, 18 years. Now, it's interesting. Elimelech, 
This man who's moved his family means my God is king. But I'll tell you, God was not the king of his life when he was making these decisions. And what was the consequence? Look at verse 3. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left and her two sons. See, this is a story about how to pursue things incorrectly, and particularly security. That was a bad decision, number one. It led to husband's death. That bad decision led to disobedience, which is the result of running. When you run uh, away from problems, then it's going to lead to disobedience. Rather than uh, looking at those things in terms of eternity, in terms of God's perspective for you, that all things work together for the good. How do we know that this is going to end up in disobedience? Well, it does because you look ahead at verse 4, and there's more bad news. Now, they took wives of the women of Moab. The name of one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth, and they dwelt there about 10 years. So the two sons married Moabite women. Now, you don't learn until chapter 4 that Maclown is the one that married Ruth, and Kilion is the one that married Orpah, but it doesn't matter. They're both dead. Now, what's wrong with them marrying? Well, they, they, were, they were forbidden to marry Gentile women. When you read about this in Deuteronomy 7, 1 to 11, they were not to do that. And it was actually the women of, of, of Moab in Moses' day that seduced the Jewish men into immorality, remember that, and, 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 and idolatry. And as a result of that, God killed 24,000 of them. So even the sons, they follow their father's footsteps in disobedience. And in verse 5, we see that they suffer the same consequences. Verse 5, both Maclown and Kilion also died. So you have this family that moves there. All the men died. All that is left is the women. So the women survived her two sons and her husband. So in trying to run from their problems in search of security, Elimelech and Naomi traded one famine for three funerals. Is that worth it? Probably not. Now, Naomi is a stranger in a foreign land, and she has no men. And in those days, that's a very frightening prospect indeed. If the famine were to carry on and there is no heir, they're going to be doomed. So Naomi is left really without hope. But this is a story of hope, which I love. Every time you start to feel hopeless, Hope is introduced. It's a story of hope, and hope arrives with good news from Bethlehem. Look at verse 6. Then she arose with her daughter-in-law um, that she might return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the country of Moab that the Lord had visited his people by giving them bread. Therefore, she went out from the place where she was and her two daughters-in-law with her, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. What an amazing thing. The, the famine has ended in Bethlehem, the house of bread has bread again. Now, some commentators believe that this is an example of repentance, that she's looked at those graves and she's turned, she's going back to the Lord, but there's actually nothing in the text that indicates that. The only motivation given in the text is bread. It's security again. Naomi is actually still being governed by the circumstances. In fact, notice what she does next. You can see it by what she says and does. Verse 8, And Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each to her mother's house. The Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest each in the house of her husband. And so she kissed them and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, surely we will return with you to your people. So they're on their way to Judah, but she says, you know what? You're best off to stay uh, here. And she wants them to remain in the land. And her desire, it is for their well-being. She says things like, the Lord deal kindly with you as you dealt with the dead and me. 
And kindness, by the way, is a theme in this book. It's also a major theme in, uh, throughout the Old Testament. That word kindness, kased, it speaks of God's covenant loyalty, covenant loyalty to his people, and it involves grace, and grace is involved in extending to people who don't deserve it, isn't it? It's extending it to them when they don't have done nothing to earn it. And that's what Naomi wants. She's asking for God's grace upon these two, can I say it, pagan women, right? They're from a pagan nation, Moab. And, and to bless them as she goes back to her own covenant people. She says, the Lord grant that you may find rest each in the house of her husband. So what does she want for them? What she wants for them is remarriage. She wants them to find husbands. She wants them to have security. She wants them to have rest and comfort and ease. She desires these things for her daughters-in-law. They're good things, but are they the best things in this circumstance? If you think about it, remarriage is the only thing that she is concerned with. Now look at verse 11. But Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Are there still sons in my womb that they may be your husbands, and I know that sounds weird. <laughs> what is she referring to here? It's the Leverite custom in Israel in which a brother, a brother was responsible to marry his deceased brother's wife in order to conceive a son. And that way they would perpetuate the brother's name and inheritance. It was actually something God had put in place to actually protect and provide for widows, but also to carry on that name. It's preserving the name of the brother, providing security for the wife. Now look at verse 12. Turn back, my daughters, go, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, if I should have a husband tonight and should also bear sons, would you wait for them till they were grown? Would you restrain yourselves from having husbands? All right, so she's looking at this saying, you know, even if I got a husband today and I had a child, I was pregnant today, would you really wait for me to have a child so that you could marry them? She's past the childbearing years anyway. But she's saying it's, it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous that you would wait around for me to have a, a son so that this, this custom could be fulfilled. But again, all she's thinking about here is the temporary security. Can I just ask, what about eternal security? These two women, she's encouraging to go back to them, their gods, to their gods. That is the god of Chemosh. That's what the Moabites worshipped, an evil pagan god. Why don't you just go back to your family and your gods? I'm part of the covenant people. I'm going to go on. She's only thinking about temporary security, no eternal security at all. But look at what she says in the rest of verse 13. No, my daughters, for it grieves me very much for your sakes that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. She's not thinking about these eternal ramifications at all because she's full of bitterness. I came here and look what's happened. And that's the result of, of disobedience in our lives is bitterness and shame. We, we feel that when we disobey God, don't you? It weighs heavy on you. And she's feeling it even now. Look at verse 14. That's the result of di disobedience. They lifted up their voices and they wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. So we don't see Orpah again. So the kiss was a kiss of separation. Orpah goes, all right, I guess, you know, you've said enough. I'll go back to my people. But Ruth clinging to her means she's made up her mind. She wants to stay with Naomi. So verse 15, and she said, look, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. Now she's urging her again. She just keeps pressing the point. Go back to your people and your gods. Go back. Why is she so adamant? Could I suggest another reason for this? Where is she going back to? Her hometown, 
her homeland. What is she bringing along? Moabite women that they were not supposed to marry. What she's really concerned about, she's shamed. If I bring these women out, it's an example that we disobey God. They're with me. I've made a mistake, and they're living it. It's better if you just go back. Go back to your gods and your people, because honestly, if I go here, boy, these people are going to judge me. That's what she's worried about. So I don't see anything that shows any kind of repentance. She's thinking about herself. She's thinking about temporary things. They're living proof, constant reminders of the mistakes made in disobedience. But this is the grace of God. Someone else is determined, and it's Ruth. Ruth is the determined one. She's a Moabite. She's she's not a covenant people of God, yet she wants to be with Naomi. She sees something here. Look at verse 16. But Ruth said, entreat me not to leave you or to turn back from following after you. For wherever you go, I will go. And wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. And where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. And the Lord do do so to me and more also. If anything but death parts you and me. Is that not one of the most beautiful expressions of commitment in all of the world's literature? She confesses allegiance to Naomi forever. I'm with you to the grave. She confesses allegiance to her people. and, And you count me as an Israelite. And she confesses allegiance to her God, the God of Israel. Incredible. Now, this decision is made despite the encouragement to do otherwise. And despite, notice it, Naomi's faithless example. There's nothing that shows any kind of faith. Just go back, go back. This is God's sovereignty at work, people. This is when God works despite us, in spite of us, right? Ruth is making changes for the good, but Naomi, honestly, for the bad. Look at verse uh, 18. When she saw that she was determined to go with her, she stopped speaking to her. Now the two of them went until they came to Bethlehem, and it happened when they had come to Bethlehem that all the city was excited because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? Now, Naomi, that word means pleasant, and they don't even recognize the pleasant. This can't be, is this Naomi? Because she has changed, but she's changed for the worse. She's not the same pleasant person she used to be. Look at verse 20. But she said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. Naomi means pleasant, but Mara means bitterness. My name should be changed. Call me bitterness. I am bitter. Verse 21. I went out full and the Lord has brought me home again empty. Why do you call me Naomi since the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has afflicted me? Who is she blaming? It's all God's fault. Look what God has done. She recognizes God's hand in it. The Almighty has afflicted me, but she's bitter. These verses demonstrate the ultimate result of running from problems and disobeying God. Bitterness. And sometimes people walk away completely because of that. It's the, perspe- it's the wrong perspective. When we're bitter, honestly, we forget to see the good things that God has given We eclipse the view of God's eternal plan. Look at all the things Naomi is missing. She had life. She was still a living human being. She had left three graves back there, but she was alive. She had opportunity. She's now surrounded by friends in her homeland, people who would love her. She had her daughter-in-law, Ruth. And what's amazing about this story, God's going to use Ruth. He's going to bless Ruth, this story. And through Ruth and his grace upon her, the grace is going to come to Naomi. And she had God. 
The Lord is actually the central figure of this little story. 22 time, 25 times he's mentioned in four chapters, so he's the chief actor in this drama. But there's another thing. God's hope for her is actually being shown here because she arrives at a particular time of year. It says at the beginning of barley harvest in verse 22, look at it. Say, Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab. Now they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Now what is significant, uh, the significance of this detail here? A barley harvest was the time when the community got together and they expressed God's goodness. They praised God for the blessing of harvest. Naomi thought she was returning what? Empty. I'm just empty. I'm empty handed. But she had Ruth. She comes back with Ruth and the harvest is ripe. So this is a message of hope again. Hold on. You might feel empty, but God is doing something here. And so we see the example here. This is an example just in those few steps of seeking security, but sinfully. How do we seek security? Submissively right? We guys must submit to the, the, the purposes of God in all this. So that's kind of the next point here. Now, Naomi's bitter. She's a, uh, bitter against God, but Ruth, Ruth is willing to, to, to have, let God have his way in her life. I, I, I'll let him be my God, just like he's your God. So chapter one ends with this little glimmer of hope, a, a new beginning. Um, but if our, our circumstances change um, for the better, but we don't change, we remain the same, will probably become worse. God's providence in our lives is not to make us comfortable. We think that's what it is. That's not the goal. It's to make us conformable. He wants to conform us to the image of his son. So look at verse one of chapter two. We're going along. We're getting through it. All right. There was a relative of Naomi's husband, a man of great wealth of the family of Elimelech, and his name was Boaz. I love this. You got to pause here. This is for us, the readers. This is where the readers, the audience, find out some information that the characters in the story don't know, okay? That's to us. That's just a little message to us. It's a liter literary device called third-person omniscience, okay? We've just been notified about something that's really important. As we are reading the story, we know that Naomi and Ruth, boy, they could really use some security right now. If only there was someone that they knew that could provide that. And so God, in his omniscience here and giving us this word says, okay, so there's a relative of Naomi's, uh, of Naomi's husband, and he's a man of great wealth. He's in that place and his name is Boaz. So we as the readers are going, oh, if only there was a way to connect Boaz with them. Can you find him on Facebook? I mean, what would you do to connect them? This is to make us go, oh, what, what's God going to do? Do you want to seek security submissively? then first you must trust in God's provision. And this is amazing. Look in verse two. So Ruth the Moabitess said to Naomi, please let me go to the field and glean heads of grain after him in whose sight I may find favor. And she said to her, go my daughter. Now, what is taking place here? What is Ruth referring to? Well, Ruth the Moabitess, she understood the rights of the poor. She understood to an extent the God of Israel, that the God of Israel made allowances to support the poor. In Leviticus 19, 9 to 10 is where we kind of learn about this. It says, when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not wholly reap the corners of your field, nor shall you gather the gleanings of your harvest, and you shall not glean your vineyard. 
nor shall you gather every grape of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and the stranger. I am the Lord your God. Don't take all the food from the field because I want the poor to have provision. Isn't that amazing? That's the God you serve. He cares about the poor. The poor were allowed to gather grain from a field after the harvesters had passed through. God had instructed the nation of Israel to treat the poor fairly and generously. And in Proverbs 22, 22 to 23, he says, Do not rob the poor because he is poor, nor oppress the afflicted at the gate, for the Lord will plead their cause and plunder the soul of those who plunder them. There's a, there's a warning for you. If you don't treat the poor uh, uh, you know, justly, then I'm going to come and uh, take you out. I'll plunder you. Now, not only were the, the poor and the stranger to be looked out for, and she's both of those because she is a Moabite, but God showed concern for widows as well because many of them would have been poor. And in Exodus 22, 22 to 24, it says this, you shall not afflict any widow or fatherless child. If you afflict them in any way and they cry out to me at all, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will become hot. And I will kill you with the sword. Your wife shall be widows and your children fatherless. So I'll just reverse it to you and see how you like it. But see this again, this is the God who defends the fatherless. He defends the widow and he has provided for them. That's the kind of God uh, they serve. Now, because that's the God of the of Israelites, the Israelites were to emulate that in their actions. Why? Because they were also poor and oppressed, weren't they? For many, many years at the hands of the Egyptians. So they understood what that kind of life was like. So they should have known better. And you might ask, is this strictly an Old Testament thing? No, it's not, actually. You know, the New Testament speaks into this area of providing and caring for widows as well. And James 1.27 says, pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. And Paul also teaches on it in 1 Timothy 5. So Ruth here takes the initiative. Ruth does. She takes the initiative. She doesn't wait for Naomi to serve her. She's the one that steps out in faith. She exhibits trust in the God who had made provision for the poor. That's the stranger, the widow, and the poor, and she is all three. So first, you've got to trust in God's provision. She understood that and said, let me go do that. Let me go take of what God has already provided for me. Second, you must trust in God's providence. This is awesome. Look at verse 3. Then she left and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to who? Boaz. Who's Boaz? We just read him out in verse 1. He's the rich man. He's the man we're going, oh, hopefully we could connect these two. That would be amazing. And it says, she just happened to go to the field that belonged to Boaz. Is there such a thing as happenstance, chance, fate? Right, we say things like, oh, good luck. <laughs> I remember we like, we shouldn't say that because there's no such thing. This happened to is not happened to. This is providence. And we must trust in God's providence because Ruth is really a widow pouring herself into serving her own widowed mother-in-law. God directs her to come to the field of Boaz to glean. Boaz is the rich, wealthy relative. And now I'm going to just tell you as we go into this, Boaz, from the beginning of this, is a picture of Christ. We talked a lot about this in Hebrews, that there's Old Testament types that point to the New Testament realities. Boaz is a picture of Christ, and you won't be able to avoid it as we go through this. Look at verse 4. Boaz enters the scene. Now, behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. 
And they answered him, the Lord bless you. Now, up to this point, we've only known two facts about Boaz. We know that he was a relative of the family of Elimelech, um, and we also know he was wealthy. And that's really all we've been concerned about. Hey, he's a relative, and he's got money, so this is good. But here we learn a great deal more about him. And it's really important because what time is this story taking place? It's the time when the judges ruled, when everyone's doing whatever's right in their own eyes. You would think the kind of man you would meet in this story would be a man just out for himself. But when we see Boaz come on the scene, look at this. The greeting of Boaz just to his workers tells us much about them. He greets them warmly. The Lord bless you. He said, that tells us what? He's a gentle man which you probably wouldn't come across very often in the times when the judges ruled. He blesses them in the name of the Lord. That's important because it also tells you he's a godly man. And then his servants respond to him similarly, which means he's a respected man. This is the kind of man, as we read this, we would want to see paired up with Ruth. God's grace and his provision are pouring out all over the pages of this book. Now look at verse 5. Now, Boaz said to his servant who was in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is this? And so the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered and said, it is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. And she said, please let me glean and gather after the reapers among the sheaves. And so she came and has continued from morning until now, though she rested a little in the house. So here we learn about, um, uh, well, well, actually we, we learn that, 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 that Ruth has caught Boaz's eye, which tells me something else about him because he's looked at the field where the poor are supposed to be, which means he actually cares for the poor. He's a humble man as well. And the servant's response indicates that everyone was really aware of Naomi's uh, Moabite souvenir she brought back, right? She knows about uh, Ruth. But he adds that she asked permission, she asked permission to glean among the sheaves. And she continued until morning. So he's commenting on her diligence. She's respectful. She's diligent. And so Boaz is at the field the exact same time as Ruth. And now he's also noticed her and he's inquired about her. So all these things are looking pretty good. Now look at verse eight. Then Boaz said to Ruth, you will listen, my daughter, will you not? Now Boaz, this is he took initiative first. Ruth is in the field. Boaz goes to her first. Now we look at Boaz as a picture of Christ and his grace. Grace always means that God makes the first move. God always makes the first move to come to our aid. Because why? We don't deserve it. He loves us. We loved him first, or he loved us first, and that's why we love him. Now, notice he calls her my daughter. This is because she was younger than him. We learn that later. But it was also a term of endearment. And is telling her that he's going to treat her like a member of the family, which is an amazing thing because it promises some things. And he says them in verse 8. So continue on in verse 8. Do not go to glean in another field, nor go from here, but stay close by my young women. Let your eyes be on the field which they reap and go after them. Have I not commanded the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink from uh, what the young men have drawn. So Boaz makes some promises. He just met her. But he makes some promises here to protect and provide for her. Provision here is given in that he tells her to continue to glean in his field. You don't need to go find anywhere else to glean. I'm going to provide everything you need right here. When you come to Christ, you need not go anywhere else. He gives you everything you need. 
We don't need to window shop to any other religion. You can't find grace anywhere else. Forgiveness, it all comes to us through Christ. And he says, you can stay here and glean, which meant throughout the several weeks of harvesting barley, which is March and April, and the wheat in June and July. So you've got months of gleaning ahead of you, gal. Not only that, but she could go with the the servant girls, he said, with my young women, which means they were the first ones to go after the reapers. She got first shot. He just gave Ruth a fast pass to reaping. He also offers protection. Remember, he told the young men, he said, I told the young men not to touch her. That's a commentary on the days when the judges ruled. That he actually had to tell his men not to touch this young woman. But think about what a picture of grace all of this is. The master has become like the servant that he might show God's love to this foreigner. This is everything Naomi encouraged Ruth to give up. Think about that. She said, go back to your gods and your people, but look at Ruth as what, what she's getting by coming to the God of Israel. He's treating her like one of the family. And that's Jesus Christ. He came as a servant that he might save us and make us part of his family, right? That's it. He shared with us the riches of mercy and love and grace. And you read about that in Ephesians 2. He gave us uh, the riches of wisdom and knowledge. Paul goes on about that. Oh, the depths of wisdom and knowledge. He, he realizes the riches we have in Christ, that God will supply all our needs according to his riches in glory. They're unsearchable riches, Paul tells us. So the provision and the protection of Christ are beginning to be seen in Boaz here. He's a type of Christ. Look at verse 10. So she fell on her face, bowed down to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes, that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? Found favor is matzah chen. Why have I acquired grace? I hope that you have asked that question of God. Why me, God? Why, why have I found favor? Because I know that it's nothing in me. And she's recognized there's nothing in me. It's a response of humility and also of great gratitude. She knows she is a foreigner. We're foreigners. We're outside of the spiritual family of God. And yet he shows favor and grace and says, come, be part of the family. She's unworthy. We're unworthy. It's incredible. Read, look at verse 11. And Boaz answered and said to her, it has been fully reported to me all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband and how you have left your father and your mother in the land of your birth and have come to people whom you did not know before. The Lord repay your work and a full reward be given you by the Lord God of Israel under whose wings you have come for refuge. The word answered, he says that Boaz answered her is ana. It means to sing or to shout. He testified or he announced Ruth's reputation. It goes before you. He heard about her sacrifice of leaving her family and her home to serve and support her mother-in-law. In addition, he recognizes that she uh, has since sought, sought refuge where? Under the wings of the God of Israel. I just love that. In Psalm 17, 8, uh, the psalmist writes about God the same way. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me under the shadow of your wings. See, God there is portrayed as a mother bird, huh? Sheltering, sheltering the fragile and young uh, with her wings. And this is where true security is found. He's like, you've come to the place, the only place, where you can find security, under whose wings you have come for refuge. Verse 13, then she said, let me find favor in your sight, my Lord, for you have comforted me and have spoke kindly to me, to your maidservant, though I am not like one of your maidservants. That's the recognition of grace, isn't it? Do you recognize grace in your life? God is so 
gracious with us. She's greatly comforted. She's greatly encouraged because he spoke kindly to her. Literally means spoke uh, friendly uh, to her. Look at verse 14. Now Boaz said to her at mealtime, come here and eat of the bread and dip your piece of bread in the vinegar. So she sat beside the reapers. He passed parched grain to her. She ate and was satisfied and kept some back. Keep that note. And when she rose up to glean, Boaz commanded his young men saying, let her glean even among the sheaves and do not reproach her. So don't correct her for doing that. Also let grain from the bundles fall purposely for her. Leave it that she may glean and do not rebuke her. Notice this, okay? This is not just grace. This is abundant grace. Abundant. Jesus came that we might not just have life, but have life more abundantly, John 10, 10 says. It's abundant life. Why do we seek security outside of the provision and protection of God? We should never do that. Look at verse 17. So she gleaned in the field until evening and beat out what she had gleaned. And it was about an ephah of barley, which in the end means about 30 pounds of grain, which for two uh, women like this, they would be able to eat on that for uh, a week. And so now she's going to go home to Naomi. And last time we saw Naomi, she pronounced that she was known now forevermore as bitter, right? She's, I'm no longer pleasant. I'm a bitter person. But the only words we've heard from Naomi uh, since then were in her reply to Ruth's request to go and glean. She said, go, go, my daughter. We haven't actually seen anything about Naomi. How is she going to respond to this? Because there's no recorded words of encouragement. There's no uh, promises of prayer for God's favor or, or safety. How, how is she going to respond? Look at verse 18. Then she took it up and went into the city, and her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. And so she brought out and gave to her what she had kept back after she had been satisfied. So not only did she bring the 30 pounds of grain, but also the meal that he gave. She, she brought what she kept back. <laughs> Incredible. And verse 19 says, And her mother-in-law said to her, Where have you gleaned today? <laughs> I, I just love that. Where did you go, Disneyland? Um, where, where did you work Blessed be the one who took notice of you. Last coming out of her mouth was bitterness. What's coming out of her mouth now? Blessing. She pronounces a blessing upon the one who took notice of her, showed her kindness. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the man's name was, oh, let me think about it. What was it? starts with a B. <laughs> Could you imagine the tent? Oh, yeah, his name was was Boaz. Now, I love this because that wasn't revealed before to Naomi. Look at verse 20. Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, blessed be he of the Lord who has not forsaken his kindness to the living and the dead. And Naomi said to her, this man is a relation of ours, one of our close relatives. So another blessing comes out of her mouth. Why is she so excited? Because close relative means kinsman redeemer which is the main theme of this whole uh, book. A kinsman redeemer, a close relative, could redeem several things in, uh, in, 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 the, in the Israelites' community. They could redeem a family member that had been sold in slavery. They could redeem land, but they could also uh, redeem the family name. And in Deuteronomy 25, I know we're out of time, but I'll, let me just read it to you. 25, 5 to 10, this is how it tells us that's to, to happen. If, if brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the widow of the dead man shall not be married to a stranger outside the family. Her husband's brother shall go into her, take her as his wife, and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And it shall be that the firstborn son which she bears 
will succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. But if the man does not want to take his brother's wife, then let his brother's wife go up to the gate to the elders and say, my husband's brother refuses to raise up a name to his brother in Israel. He will not perform the duty of my husband's brother. And then the elders of his city shall call him and speak to him. But if he stands firm and says, I do not want to take her, then his brother's wife shall come to him in the presence of the elders, remove his sandal from his foot, spit in his face, and answer and say, so shall it be done to the man who will not build up his brother's house. <laughs> that, that, that was the process. All right? So the, like I mentioned earlier, this custom was the brother was supposed to go into and, and marry the, the, the wife of his dead brother. So it's an earthly custom, but it pictures a spiritual reality of God redeeming us. He redeemed us out of slavery, did he not? That's what God did for us. In Romans 6, 15 to 18, it says, What then? Shall we sin because we're not under law but under grace? Certainly not. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one's slaves whom you obey? Whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, you become slaves of righteousness. Amazing. So Boaz pictures Christ who redeemed us, not with corruptible things like silver or gold, Peter says, but with the spotless blood of Christ. So this is an amazing uh, picture of our redemption as well. And she says, this man is a kinsman redeemer. Look at verse 21. Ruth the Moabite said, he also said to me, you shall stay close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women and that people do not meet you in any other field. And so she stayed close by the young women of Boaz to glean until the end of barley harvest and wheat harvest. And she dwelt with her mother-in-law. So Ruth relays the rest of the good news, the generous offer to, to remain in the field that she could do it out throughout the harvest. So that's several months of gleaning that she could do. And this turn of events begins to mark the point where Naomi's emptiness begins to be refilled. Her bitterness and her shame and her doubt has been replaced by hope. All of this because Ruth, not Naomi, Ruth began to trust in God's provision and in God's providence which is that not how God does it? One final point in seeking security submissively comes to us through the last two chapters of this book. And don't worry, we're not going to do the whole of the last two chapters. But let me tell you what the last point is. It's trusting in God's plan. Because in all this, God has a, a bigger plan, and we don't know the bigger plan. You might never know the bigger plan, but you must trust that there's a plan. Your God doesn't just do things haphazardly. He has a plan, and you must trust that he has a plan. Look again at Naomi's words in verse 20 real quick. Go back to verse 20. Then Naomi said to her, Blessed be he of the Lord who has not forsaken his kindness to the living and the dead. She sees the hand of God in all this. She sees his provision. She sees his providence. And therefore, she concludes that God has a plan. And it is to forsake the living. He's not going to forsake the living. That's her. That's, that's Ruth. But also the dead. Who, who's the dead? Maclown. Ruth's dead husband. She's thinking ahead like, oh, he might preserve his line. And I think that's this idea here. When we began to see that, that God has provided through his provision, we've trusted his provision, and we also see that God's 
providence is at play in those, those things, then, then we can trust God's plan. But what it means, it doesn't mean we just sit back and do nothing. When we began to see God's hand to move us here, he had provided, he was providentially working things. We didn't just see back and go, okay, well, Lord, I hope you get us to Wales. We had to do things, right? We had to make steps to make that happen. That's what you see here. That is the biblical format here. Look at verse one of chapter three. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law said to her, now she has a plan, my daughter, shall I not seek security for you? There's that word, that it may be well with you. But she's coming from the right perspective. Why? Because she sees God's hand in it. So it's okay now for her to seek the security, okay? And this is what he says. Now, Boaz, whose young women you were with, is he not our relative? So your minds are the fact. And in fact, he's winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Therefore, wash yourself and anoint yourself, put on your best garment and go down to the threshing floor. Oh, this all sounds good, yeah. And do not make yourself known to the man until he's finished eating and drinking. Okay, what's gonna happen? Verse four, and then it shall be when he lies down that you shall notice the place where he lies and you shall go in, uncover his feet and lie down and he will tell you what you should do. <laughs> okay, you, you had me up until that point. Like, you know, take a bath, put some nice clothes on and then go lie down at his feet. What, what is, what is this? What's happening here? Well, first of all, she, she's starting to make a plan. She knows that he is going to be winnowing barley at the threshing floor. There were places where they would clear out to, to do the threshing. And there was a common place that they did that. And it was a time of celebration. They would end it the day with a feast. And then the person of the day, Boaz, would rest by the mound because you had to protect it from robbers. You're like, why would he be sleeping? Because he's got to protect it. So we'd sleep by that. So here's the plan in verses um, three, to, 3 to 4. We kind of read that. And, and actually, let's add 5 and 6. And she says, uh, verse 5, she said to her, all that you say to me, I will do. And so she went down to the threshing floor, did according to all that her mother-in-law instructed her. So Ruth, she went, she went through it. So why uncover his feet? Why lie down here? What is happening here it is... The, the plan of God in terms of the, the hierarchy that he created of responsibility in mankind, men and women, men's authority over women in just the basic order of creation. This was submission. And it's the same way we come to Christ. You don't come to Christ in your own strength and power. You don't come to him demanding anything. We come and lay ourselves at his feet. And we say to Christ, oh, all that you say to me, I will do because we say he's our Lord. And this is what this is a picture of. It's submission. And it's a beautiful picture here. And if you were to see this picture here today in a modern story, Ruth wouldn't be at his feet. Ruth would be standing over his head. But it is not the picture of submission. And security only comes to us when we seek it submissively. And that means submissively submitting to the authority of God. And so she's at his feet. Verse 7, and after Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was cheerful, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain, and she came softly, uncovered his feet, and laid down. And now it happened at midnight that the man was startled and turned himself, and there a woman was lying at his feet. Now you have to wonder what startled him, because I kind of think Ruth got tired of waiting and tickled his foot, you know, and it's like, what's, what's that? Um, we don't know, but this is, this is a rude awakening. The Bible has many rude awakenings. You have Adam, you know, he went to sleep single. He woke up finding he had an operation. Now he was married. You know, like what, what happened here? Jacob woke up married to the wrong woman, you know, and now poor Boaz wakes up and there's a lady at his feet. Like, where did you come from? And uh, this is what happens. In verse nine, he says, who are you? And so she answered, I'm Ruth, your maid servant. She's not his maid servant. 
but he called her a maidservant. Do you remember that? You are now my maidservant. And she says, I'm Ruth, I'm your maidservant. Take your maidservant under your wing, for you are a close relative. And then he said, blessed are you of the Lord, my daughter, for you have shown more kindness at the end than at the beginning, in that you did not go after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you request, for all the people of my town know that you are a virtuous woman. Amazing. He has said, I will do what you have. You you see, Boaz, he thought, he thought he wasn't in the running. I thought you'd go after younger men. So blessed are you that you would even, you know, look at me. It shows that he was willing. These are all things that Naomi saw. Naomi saw an interest. Wow, he took interest of you. He called you in. He gave you the field. I think you should pursue uh, this. I know it seems weird, but in this whole picture, it's Ruth actually kind of saying, hey, would you marry me? (laughs) And Boaz is saying, well, I didn't think I had a shot, but hey, I'm game. Um, But here's the thing. Verse 12 throws a little hitch in it. It says, now it is true that I am a close relative. However, there is a relative closer than I. And at this, this point in the story, we go, no, it was going so good. Because it goes to the closest relative has the option to um, marry. And so anyway, he has promised her that he will do whatever it takes. And he sends her home with another blessing of, of barley and all of this. And I'll just finish chapter four for you. So he goes to the closer relative, and you can actually look at verse 4. And he goes to the man. He calls him and says, okay, this is the deal. And uh, verse verse 3, he said to the close relative, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, sold the piece of land which belonged to our brother Elimelech. And I thought to inform you, saying, buy it back in the presence of the inhabitants and the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not redeem it, then tell me that I may know, for there's no one but you to redeem it, and I'm the next after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Now, I love it. He says, you want a piece, of, a piece of land and you're the next? He's like, oh, yeah, I'll take the land. What he failed to mention was that land came with a bonus widow, a Moabite widow. He, does, he waits. He does it now in the next verse. Then Boaz said, oh, on the day that you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you must also buy it from Ruth the Moabite, just the wife of the dead, to perpetuate the name of the dead through his inheritance. And then he says, oh, no, no, I don't, I don't want that. And so Boaz is able to take Ruth as his wife. And what's amazing here, the plan of God. This is a Moabite woman, a pagan Chemosh idol worshiper who's called into the family of God and has shown amazing grace, which we sing about all the time. And God's ultimate plan, which neither, neither of them could have, could have had any idea about at all, was, was to maintain and preserve the kingly line. And if you just look at the genealogy that ends with all of this, it says this in verse 17, uh, I'm sorry, 18. Now, this is the genealogy of Perez. Perez begat Hezron. Hezron begat Ram. Ram begat Aminadab. Aminadab begat Nashon. Nashon begat Salmon. Salmon begat Boaz. Boaz begat Obed. Obed begat Jesse. And Jesse begat David, King David, through whom came Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Could anyone have foreseen that God would take a Moabite woman and bring him into the family of the Messiah and the kingly line? God works in ways that we don't, and we have to sometimes just sit still. At the end of this, when Naomi is told what happened, and there might be a closer relative, she wisely at this point just tells Ruth, 
at this point, you can do nothing. You need to sit still. And sometimes we need to be still and know that he is God because God is always at work. And we don't know the eternal plans that he is trying to accomplish through you, but it's when we try to take matters into our own hands because problems come, difficulties come, and we want to react, but we must first seek God and make sure that we're responding submissively and not sinfully because ultimately God is at work for your good and for his glory. Let me pray. God, thank you so much for your word. I thank you so much for this wonderful story. What what a precious treasure that you wove into your word to give us a picture of your grace, a, a picture of, of humanity and how we normally want to respond to difficulty and problems, taking matters into our own hands and running in fear. Instead, Lord, we are to submissively trust in your gracious provision, trust in your providence that you will guide us when we're seeking your will. And trust that you ultimately have a great plan for us. I thank you for the plan that you accomplished in the story of Ruth, Lord. That through that ultimately came Jesus the Messiah. Jesus our Savior. Jesus who died for the sins of mankind. That we might be called the family of God. We love you. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.